Hello, everyone. Welcome to this conversation on protection in humanitarian action. My name is Ed Schenkenberg, and I'm the director of the Humanitarian Exchange and Research Center, also known as HERE. Um, and with me today is Marcia Montemuro, research director of HERE. We're a small think tank in Geneva, particularly concerned about the gap between policy and practice. Ever since our creation in 2014, what we see is that protection um, has become a major aspect of our work. Why? Protection is key to humanitarian action. Without, without it, I would say, humanitarian action basically becomes service delivery, something that anyone uh, can do. So protection really um, points to what humanitarian action, I believe, is about strengthening, uh, improving the rights uh, of people, how uh, people in need, how their rights are being fulfilled. That said, at the same time, protection still is somewhat mysterious to many people working in the humanitarian domain. Um, they, there seems to be an image that protection is something for lawyers. Um, there are questions on the definition and the understanding of protection, and there are certainly questions on what it means to work on protection in practice. So in this conversation, we'll touch on a number of these issues. Um, we'll go into uh, the definition, the legal aspects of protection, who has a responsibility, of course, international organizations such as UNHCR, but also particularly uh, what we'll talk about is the role and responsibility of NGOs. Marcia and I, a few weeks ago, worked with a group of German NGOs and staff from the Foreign Federal Ministry on, um, in fact, on a workshop on protection. We facilitated a workshop um, where about 25 people uh, participated. And we started that workshop particularly with defining protection. Marcia, could you say something more about um, particularly that first part of the workshop? Yes, thank you, Ed, and hello, everyone. I think it's always important to start from, uh, uh, from, from a definition of protection. And we, we see it because it basically sets forward the, the elements that we may need to take into consideration. What we use now uh, in the humanitarian sector is a definition that was um, uh, endorsed by Interagency Standing Committee. And he highlights indeed a number of factors. So it defines protection as all activities aimed at ensuring full respect of, for the rights of the individual in accordance with the letter and the spirit of the relevant bodies of law. And for the bodies of law, it's of course referring to human, uh, human rights law, humanitarian law and refugee law. It's important to highlight these elements because it also then, um, I think, Ed, goes back to the point that you just raised, that sometimes we think of protection as a very specialized field. Um, but because indeed it refers to uh, the, the bodies of law, but at the same time, I think it's important to realize that we, we can really see protection in many different ways. Of course, it can be an activity, it can be something that is specific to um, uh, staff with a specialized background who have really uh, dedicated their um, uh, studies to understanding the different provisions set forth in these different bodies of law. But I think it's also interesting to see how we can add two other dimensions to it um, so that it really shows that um, we can all play a role when it comes to protection because we can also see it as a pro protectionist approach 
So it's really a way of understanding all the different dimensions of humanitarian action. Or it could also be seen as an outcome. So it's about um, the expected changes in the behavior, the knowledge, the policy or practice uh, of those um, who have a responsibility. Um, so the so-called duty bearers and other relevant stakeholders, which is really interesting because as you were saying, Ed, earlier, um, of course, um, there's a number of actors that have a specific mandate uh, to, uh, to protect. Um, but um, of course, there's also um, other uh, actors like NGOs um, that are so-called non-mandated or self-mandated. But maybe, Ed, I think it would be interesting to see because um, when we talk about those who have a specific mandate um, and we refer to refugee law, of course, uh, the first um, actor that comes to mind um, is UNHCR. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work recently on UNHCR and trying to um, uh, look at their role in uh, refugee protection. So maybe you have a little bit to say, uh, both in terms of the uh, role of UNHCR, but also how this definition has helped or not uh, over over time in uh, in uh, um, ensuring that the rights of the people we serve are indeed upheld. Right. So um, exactly as you said. Um, Clearly, humanitarian um, organizations and the people working with before humanitarian organizations don't need to be lawyers. That said, they also, I mean, some of the basic legal um, underpinnings, I think, help also in a way. Um, first of all, of course, as, and speaking as a lawyer, of course, um, the first responsibility to protect people rests with governments, rest with states. But precisely what we know in the way, in, in the world where we work, it's precisely those governments, those states that are part of the problem. Um, they should also be part of the solution, but in too many cases we know um, that is still wishful thinking. So in that sense, exactly then, it, a num there's a number of humani humanitarian organizations, international organizations that have received a mandate from the international community, and that mandate is laid down in various treaties to protect certain categories of people. Well, very well known, of course, exactly and relevant to this conversation with UNHCR, which particularly, of course, has this responsibility for, for refugees. And then it's actually quite interesting to go back to some of the original uh, texts, even something I did um, uh, today. So UNHCR, in the convention relating to the status of refugees, that goes back to 1951, but is still, if you like, the corner, cornerstone of refugee law, has the responsibility to supervise the application of the convention. And actually, I was even surprised myself when I went back to the statute of UNHCR, it also has been adopted um, uh, by the UN at the same time when the convention came into force, so to speak. That text, literally says the high commissioner shall provide for the protection of refugees falling under the competence of his office by promoting and uh, pro by promoting the conclusion and ratification of international conventions like the refugee convention and further instruments and we're going to talk about that more and supervising their application so in fact unhr has the role and responsibility to supervise how states are implementing their obligations under the refugee convention uh, as such. Now, of course, we know that this is a particular <laughs> daunting task if you look at the state 
of the world's refugees and the way they are uh, protected. And uh, it's interesting also to know actually that um, um, a Dutch researcher recently um, did her PhD on uh, the supervisory role of UNHCR. And she came up with an interesting conclusion, I thought. Um, Evelyn Roemberg, her name is. And she said, in fact, one of the reasons why UNHCR is not particularly well fit at the moment um, uh, to play the supervisory role is in fact, it has too much focused on the delivery of humanitarian assistance. So it, in a way it's too operational and precisely these operations can be done by other organizations of course, including many NGOs. So UNHCR, in fact, should be more the standard bearer, so to speak, should be the guardian when it comes to the protection of, of refugees. Now, of course, it's true also there that UNHCR, for everything, of course, related to the UN, UNHCR is only as strong as the member states want it to be as such. So clearly, um, it, it, it's limited in that role, also because exactly for its resources, its finances, it's very dependent on, um, on governments for being present in countries. I mean, on the basis of the Refugee Convention, it can say, well, actually, we have the mandate for refugees. Um, but when it concerns internally displaced people, in fact, UNHCR does not have a mandate. There is not an international mandate as such. It has certain, to a certain degree, a responsibility. But then precisely, it is dependent on governments for uh, actually delivering on that, on that responsibility. So you'll see the instruments um, are there. Uh, legal texts, in fact, um, are very, very clear on it. But as we know also at the same time, uh, there are major issues when it, come, uh, when it comes to implementing, so to speak, that, that protection mandate, certainly um, in the case of UNHCR. Now, what they have done, of course, especially in recent years, is that they have worked on, if you like, new tools or new policies to, to improve the state of protection of refugees. The question, I think, Marcia, and I know you particularly have done work on the Global Compact for Refugees and, uh, and the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework and all these tools. Um, an interesting question, I suppose, to discuss is, you know, whether these new tools, in addition, in fact, to what we already have in international law, do these tools help in terms of protecting, in this case, refugees? Or what do you think? Because you could also say, actually, perhaps they're watering down uh, what we already have in terms of the, the obligations of states uh, towards refugees. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I guess, I guess it depends also on how we see this tools and personally i would see i would see for example the global compact and the comprehensive refugee response framework more as policy tools rather than new protection tools and if we see it that way then i think it's more an opportunity that uh you know the global compact and the comprehensive refugee response framework are there to enable better cooperation but it's not about setting necessarily new uh, principles as such uh, when it comes to protecting refugees. The, to, to, to what extent it's been successful? I think it was, um, it's, it's something that was uh, developed at the time when uh, it was really felt that there was an inequality in the way that states do share responsibilities, um, even um, for those who have signed uh, and ratified the 1951 Refugee Convention. And it was an opportunity to 
redistribute those responsibilities or at least bring the attention to the fact that there is such an inequality that needs to be uh, addressed. And this is um, something that we have seen in, in case of the Syrian crisis um, and uh, the, the limited, um, to some extent, willingness of many of the Western uh, countries to uh, welcome uh, refugees. And so um, I think that was very much the idea. And the fact, I think it's also bringing the attention that when it comes to solutions, um, it's not just about one actor, but it's really about the coordination and the building and the synergies of many different actors with many different mandates and roles in society that can help bring solutions about to a refugee crisis. So whether it waters down existing responsibilities, I think maybe I would think that's a bit too strong of a, of a, of a statement. Um, it's more about uh, maybe reasserting some of those principles. The question that I think remains for me is to what extent it takes the attention away from what states have already signed up to. And I think there is an interesting, you know, kind of discussions that could be had in terms of, you know, what happens when you have states that support, for example, the global compact and really play a role in promoting it, um, while at the same time, uh, you know, if we were to look at their domestic policies, um, it goes all against what they're actually promoting internationally as their international agenda. And so, yeah, I'm just curious as to where do you think um, there's um, there's scope in terms of for you know for the global compact compact to really have a successful outcome in reasserting some of those um, some of those uh, uh, provisions in the refugee conventions? Can the supervisory role of UNHCR uh, be reasserted there? And what would be what would be the way forward then? So that is an interesting um, point, Marcia, you're making there, because precisely what happened the other day, uh, I think as recent as two or three weeks ago, um, particularly the situation in Denmark, where Denmark now is about to revoke or to end the status of Syrians um, in, in Denmark and, you know, starting to send them back, so to speak. Um, I mean, there's a law being discussed in Parliament, as I understand it. And so what happened there precisely, and so it, this might be an example, I would say, of UNHCR fulfilling its supervisory role. It came out with a commentary or with a message, uh, quite elaborate, commenting on that draft, draft law. Um, so I think that probably is a positive step. It is at least something that UNHCR should do based on, on the supervisory role. But clearly what is also important is that NGOs there also have a role to play. And the NGO protection role particularly lies then in the fact in terms of their advocacy um, uh, responsibility, so to speak. Reminding states, and perhaps also at times UNHCR, um, of what, what they have signed up to. I mean, we didn't, NGOs didn't make those laws, states did. So, you know, it's exactly that, that um, they apparently need to be reminded of what they signed up uh, to. Well, as I said, fortunately, in this case, UNHCR um, at least is um, uh, in, the case, in the Danish case sort of speaking out. I think it's important that NGOs add to this or even reinforce it 
um, uh, a search. So um, that, I think that is very important. Um, the, the interesting question, and of course, particularly in terms of speaking out, NGOs raising the voice is, oh, what will happen in terms of our presence or in terms of our funding? And, you know, I, I find that question, sure, of course, it, had, it, it is a consideration, but I think that the, the, the risks or the danger involved in it are often exaggerated, to be honest. We know what re repre repressive regimes think of humanitarian action in general. Um, and, and we know how they look at human rights, uh, particularly. So in that sense, um, of course, particularly working on protection brings a certain, brings a certain risk with it. But that is part of humanitarian action. That is part of our role as NGOs in terms of defending and promoting uh, those rights. It, it, it's not, it doesn't come for free, so to speak. It, it, it involves a certain level of risk, but that is exactly, I think, what one has to, um, uh, to, to assume. So I think this issue around speaking out and so on often is, um, uh, yeah, as I said, I find it relatively exaggerated. And that's because the, 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 the downside of the, the, the flip side of it is that, in fact, we stay silent. And that risks even, that in fact may lead to a worse situation in terms of a certain level of complicity, so to speak. And there, I think you and I saw something very interesting uh, also in relation um, in the work we did with the, with the German NGOs. And I've also seen it in other situations. So what we see, I think you saw also very much in, in your work in Myanmar, um, what we see is precisely those regimes that are repressive, that, that violate their international obligations, so to speak, when it comes to human rights. What we see is that NGOs start focusing on the more technocratic side of their work, on the technical aspects of their work. Um, so they, 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 they zoom in on, I would say, nitty gritty details, stuff. Sure, of course, um, um, uh, safe spaces for children to play are important. But I thought the, 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 the review of the whole system when it came to uh, on protection, this, this was done in 2015 um, as such, also very much in relation to UNHR's role. I thought, thought they put it very well in the sense of working on child-friendly spaces in Syria while, while barrel bombs are dropped from the sky. It doesn't make sense in the sense that, sure, of course, as I said, these children deserve safe spaces, but you can't create those safe spaces if you're not looking actually about those at those barrel bombs, if you see what I mean. And precisely that, the bigger picture is 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 I think we more and more see see ignored, or we don't we don't see NGOs um, um, being well, probably they are concerned about it, but also probably they see it as things above their head. And I find that a very serious um, issue because it's precisely again that we, of course, we cannot stop really those barrel bombs, so to speak, that are you know thrown out of helicopters and so on. But we do need to remind states all the time, as I said, what they signed up to, and um, and and in that sense, but particularly, of course, in, under international law and international humanitarian law, the, there are violations as such. So I think this advocacy role, this role, I would say, even obligation, a moral obligation that NGOs have, 
is absolutely key in terms of fulfilling their, their protection role. Now, that of course is an interesting discussion to, to continue um, as such. Um, Marzia, you and I have also there worked, particularly as I said, we, with the German NGOs, trying to give them concrete tools and so on. Um, probably there's also something that you and I can do vis-a-vis um, government representatives, including donor government representatives. Um, sometimes we have the feeling that their knowledge, for instance, here in Geneva, their knowledge on these, these issues related to protection, for instance, um, well, there's room for improvement, shall we say. <laughs> so in that sense, I think uh, there's still work um, to do for us. Um, you know, if you have any further suggestions at this time, what particularly <laughs> you should do, I think that would be great. But um, yeah. yeah, certainly I think you and I have, um, have a role to play. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree, Ed. And I think one of the one of the uh, takeaways from uh, from the training workshop we had with the German NGOs, I think it's this idea that maybe there's a need to demystify the definition of protection in terms of its rooting into the legal frameworks, and I feel that sometimes because we really focus on protection as an activity and the fact that ooh, well I'm not a lawyer I'm not going to be able to understand those provisions then we lose track of you know, understanding protection as an approach or as an outcome, which may help us actually in all of those difficult situations where we may find ourselves where we believe that there is actually a tension in terms of you know, how we interpret, for example, the humanitarian imperative. And sometimes we may interpret it only as, okay, well, this is happening. There's probably discrimination happening at the same time, but we have a duty to assist. And so there is a clear tensions in many contexts between the protection role that humanitarian actors can fulfill and their assistance role. But again, it's a bit of a, of a false uh, dichotomy, a false tension. And I think if we go back and understand, as you were saying, you know, what are the frameworks that enable us? What are the national? What is the national legislation at large? We don't need to be specialized, but you know, what are the main principles that are embodied in human rights law, humanitarian law, that will help us guide us also in knowing, okay, maybe this is the right thing to do. Uh, and maybe this is how we can then take up and with more of a, uh, or easier uh, conscience to some extent, uh, some of the advocacy role vis-a-vis -vis those um, who have uh, a responsibility to, to protect first and foremost. And so I think in that case, there's definitely a role for anybody who may want to continue help demystifying, I think, protection as a very specialized field, because it's for all of us to understand what framework we're working within and what role do we play so that, you know, assistance, the assistance element of our work is not pitted against our protection role, but it's reinforced by it. And I think that's where I would see I think our role uh, going forward, and I would uh, be very right. happy to contribute. Right. No, exactly. Um, I think we have a more than enough um, opportunity. Well, there's certainly, as we said, there's a need for continuing the work on this. Fortunately, I would say there are um, a range of opportunities um, to do so. So um, 
we'll keep it at this for now. I'm sure we'll continue the conversation with um, the partners that we have us here uh, with other organizations and so on. Thank you, uh, Marzia, for this conversation. Um, Thank you, Ed. Protection always focuses minds. And uh, yeah, I certainly hope that, uh, that this conversation uh, will also be of interest uh, to those who listened uh, to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye, everyone.